This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to the show. It's Frankly Speaking, another hour of hot potato issues in South Africa. Uh, I am no longer with my uh, friend Rory Sangshawalala. He has departed me and left for the overseas. Um, he's somewhere, I think this time in, in France, doing some, some cool things uh, with uh, the Tutu Foundation. Really, really cool. Uh, he won a great, great opportunity. So congratulations to him. Uh, but he will be away for a little while. It's been an interesting uh, few weeks for both Rory and I. We've been uh, pontificating, I suppose, in our ivory towers a little bit about how we could really do something more than just talk and dialogue about the big issues in South Africa. We often speak about race. We often speak about politics. And I suppose at the end of some of the shows, we wonder, so what? You know, so what if we talk till we're blue in the face, till we argue till we're blue in the face? So what? What changes in South Africa for the average person? And I suppose it would be, uh, it would be, what's the word? I suppose it would be a bit narcissistic to think that we can change the world, but is there a way in which we can do something? Is there a way that we can change something in South Africa? And I suppose this is what this series is about. We've decided to do a little series. Um, I'm going to start it by myself, and hopefully Rory will join me when he gets back in South Africa. But frankly speaking, is there a way to change the major uh, economic challenges that South Africa faces right now? Um, Can we as South Africans in our different spaces do something about it? And we're going to speak to to people in big business, we're going to speak to uh, people doing education, we're going to speak to entrepreneurs, find out what their experience is, find out if they're doing anything differently and see if we can learn something from them um, and see if we can actually together collectively look at a positive outlook in this country because uh, really it is bleak, bleak, bleak when you look at the headlines besides uh, Cyril Ramaphosa's uh, running around and uh, being infidelitous, there's not much else going around that's positive in this country and uh, maybe it's time to have a look at something that we can do as South Africans to change the needle in this country. Um, going to start at a very interesting space. I'm going to start very close to home and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, education and reinventing or rethinking education, reimagining education. That's a big buzzword in grad school these days, reimagining. It used to be disrupting. It's now reimagining education. What could we do in the education space to reimagine? Lots of people doing things. So we'd love to hear you if you are doing something in the space. Hit us up on WeChat at Cliff Central, or uh, you can tweet me, uh, ask any questions at Yebo underscore Levy, L-E-V-Y. That's Yebo underscore Levy for your personal uh, thoughts um, slash questions as well. And as I said, starting close to home, we're actually starting with my business partner, business partner from a different business. Um, his name is Gilbert Pooley, and he's been uh, doing a lot of work in education over the last couple of years. And uh, thought we'd get him in and talk to him about how he is reimagining education and what he sees as the problems. Uh, Gilbert, uh, good evening or good morning, good day, good yesterday, <laughs> good tomorrow. <laughs> Thank you for having me on the show. <laughs> How are you doing, man? Good, thank you. Cool, cool. So we're going to be speaking to Gilbert uh, for for close to an hour, a little bit about education. I think uh, to start, maybe we can we can find out a little bit about you, Gil. Uh, what's your background in this world? Um, you know, you're a, you're a white South African middle class man with a with a man bun and a beard, and some funky glasses that are asymmetrical. Yeah. Look at that, oh, asymmetrical. Yeah. Paid a fortune for them. <laughs> In New York somewhere. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> no, I think you've done a very good job of introducing me. I think everyone knows exactly <laughs> what to expect now. <laughs> Tell us a little about yourself. Um, so I suppose let's focus on the education. I, I, you know, as many privileged white South Africans, I benefited from a fantastic education. Mm. Um, I, you know, we benefited from a fantastic education <laughs> together, a lot of it. Um, so I, I went to a, a former Model C, um, primary school and then I went to a, a private high school. Um, and then I went to UCT to do my undergrad mm. and I even had a chance to spend a year studying overseas. So wow. I really had, I had the, you know, the, some of the best on offer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned a tremendous amount, and it really set me up for a career. I went into management consulting. Um, which what did you do as your postgrad at at um, and overseas? So I studied economics. Okay. Um, and so so it's you know all of the South African education set me up well to be able to go and do a graduate course in in economics at a good university. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I suppose there's not much that one can ca- complain about about education. But when I reflect on it now, knowing what I do know, um, I just I see it as incredibly wasteful. Um, and I see I see so many people like myself that that have been even the people that have benefited from this you know supposedly mm. great education system. Um, the reality is that. I don't use very much of what was formally taught to me mm-hmm. um, in, in the work that I do on a daily basis. And even though I went into a career which was management consulting, which is very quantitative, very business, I don't think that my business undergrad or my economics postgraduate were actually very directly useful mm-hmm. um, in, in the work that I did. And and I think that like so many people, I think the one phrase that resonates for me and, and I know for you as well, Andrew, is – Almost everyone you speak to says, I learned more in the first six months of my job than I learned throughout my university or school career. So let's let's pause on that for a second, Gil, because you're running ahead of us here. Mm. Um, we'll finish this conversation in 10 minutes at the speed that you're going <laughs> to But uh, let's just understand, you, you, you worked overseas, didn't you, for a little while? I did, yeah. So I worked in London, um, and and the job that I did was, was working with businesses to try and improve them. Maximize um, their profits. Exactly. So trying to extract as much profit from the poor sucker consumers as possible or the competition or whatever. Um, so it's a very traditional business approach. Um, and, and I think, you know, the skills that I learned at university um, were somewhat useful. I suppose I, I, I had some exposure mm. to um, using, using tools like Microsoft Excel, for instance. That's, that's been a mainstay <laughs> in my life. <laughs> You know, whether it's, wow, what a tool, whether, whether it's sort of like, I don't know, um, keeping track of your own budget or it's, it's actually working out, um, you know, a budget of millions or billions of dollars mm. that a company needs to spend to invest to do things. So something as simple as Excel is something that I learned through my education, but very indirectly. Mm. Um, you know, other, other tools, writing is an important tool and communication. So a, a lot of what I did, if I wasn't using Excel, a lot of what I was doing was writing slides yeah. um, to try and communicate whatever insights I'd gleaned from doing the numbers yeah. to try to communicate that to clients. So I suppose that there are fundamental things from the education that's useful. But mm. if I think about how much time I actually spent doing Excel at school and university mm-hmm. or solving problems in using a sort of statistical approach. It was very, very limited. Um, and if I th- think about how much time I spent trying to communicate important insights, um, that was also very, very limited. How, how long were you outside of the country for? So I spent, I think, five years working. So what abroad. makes a guy who's on an upward trajectory of like, you know, high class education master's degree in economics best jobs in london you know like on a very high you know you're not working the bar at london you know <laughs> you you're doing high trajectory work what makes a guy like you come back to south africa what was the need what was the want what was the feeling i think um there was a certain amount of disconnectedness that i had i felt I felt a sense of loneliness, I suppose. It, it wasn't that I didn't have friends or community. I developed that whilst I was living and working there. But I think that life was a whole lot less meaningful there. Mm. I, one of the best things about my education um, at the school level and, and more so at university was the opportunities to get involved in community work, mm. um, social outreach, you know, at school they would call it charity work, um, but obviously by the time you got <laughs> by the time you got to university, it's more sort of like social outreach or development work. They try mm. to put a positive positive brand and spin on it. But just this idea of being able to be in some sort of student leadership position, work in a community, understand some of the problems in that community, try to, in your humble small way as a student, try to make make some sort of contribution towards it. Mm. I think that was the stuff that I learned far more from than I did from the sort of formal academic work in the classroom. Because it's it's skills such as management and organization and and then also more fundamental human skills like empathizing and understanding people from different backgrounds. Mm. Um so I didn't get a hell of a lot of that in London. Mm-hmm. Um I you know it might have been a good job and it might have been a good career track, but it it seemed quite inconsequential. I was, you know, at you know working for wealthy companies to try and make them wealthier mm. um, rather than 
what I loved about the opportunities in South Africa is there's there's so so much good work that can be done, mm. um, which can really have a positive impact on on a large group of people, not just not just playing for the inequality team to try to try to increase the riches. Um, so I think that brought me back the inequality team. Eh? That's yeah, yeah, another yeah. way to spin it. Eh? Yeah. How's it? I work for the inequality, inequality team. team. Hey? Um, so I think that that's what brought me back, and and I think lifestyle as well. We've still got it pretty damn good in South Africa, mm. and this is where the you know the privilege, the white privilege, comes in tremendously. Yeah. If you are educated in South Africa, you can live a very good lifestyle. You can um, earn well, um, and you can you can you can live a with a sense of freedom um, that is very difficult to achieve anywhere else. So even as someone who's a professional living in a big city like London, it's you have to work bloody hard, and and you you live in quite quite um, I don't know humble accommodation and and conditions in in quite a humble environment and ecosystem. Mm. I mean, it's raining and 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 depressing a lot of the time. Whereas in South Africa, if you've got a good education, you can get a fantastic job. Um, you work reasonable hours. You can live a great lifestyle. You can travel. You can spend time outdoors. Um, so there's a lot to say for living in South Africa. Okay, so we've set a bit of a, a bit of a scene for for Gilbert the person. Yeah. Um, and if you've just joined the show, welcome to it. It's frankly speaking, uh, I'm alone uh, in the booth here today, and we're asking, we're doing a series on: Is there a way to change the major economic challenges that we face in South Africa? Uh, we're going to look at big business, we're going to look at entrepreneurs, and we're going to look at education. I'm joined today uh, by the MD of Amuzi, Gilbert Pooley, and uh, he is reimagining education in a very different and interesting way. Gil, you spoke about uh, how you came back to South Africa and the reasons why you came back to South Africa. Uh, let's just get a sense of what you saw. What were the major issues that, you know, being uh, an e- economist by, by education mm. and a management consultant, you're a fair with looking at a situation and, and digging deep into the problems. From a societal perspective, what were the major indicators and problems for you where you were like, <clears throat> okay, we've got some big issues here? So I, I had an opportunity to do some work for the Clinton Foundation um, on on HIV and TB co-infection, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's what brought me back for the first time, and that was I think that was two thousand and nine, um, and at that stage, you know, th- there was there was this major hangover from this sort of Mbeki era of the terrible um, lack of response of the government to the HIV. I thought you were going to say the Confed Cup. I was like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so something phenomenal, you know, a a massive challenge like um, HIV was not <clears throat> adequately dealt with. And and I think that, that that's, that was sort of the most obvious indicator professionally mm. for me is starting to understand how um, how the response the, the response time was so slow you know it it took an, an amazing effort for South Africans like Zahi Ahmed etc to build this coalition of people to raise the awareness of the importance of the government doing something about HIV yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that that was a first indicator for me that there was fundamental things in in this case in the public healthcare space where there was just a lack of coordination and a lack of response to a very real threat mm. and and i suppose I, I started to see that in education as well i started to understand as as many people had seen for much much earlier than I, than I, I became aware of it the systemic problems in education in South Africa. Give us a sense. What are the systemic problems in South Africa? So the fact that our education system... I'm asking system, you like I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> our education system is obviously um, was designed uh, in the apartheid era by, by a government that never intended to offer an adequate education to the majority of South Africans. Mm. You know, the majority of South Africans, there was a specific education system designed to... To keep them in in menial jobs and menial roles, um, and and the only real education investment of any value was made in a tiny minority of the population, obviously the white population. And despite, um, I, I would imagine, goodwill to change that um, in the transition and the lead up to democracy. Obviously, people like Nelson Mandela um, put education as one of the the most important <coughs> things yeah. in society. Um, despite that goodwill. 
um, it didn't really ever translate to fundamental shifts in terms of uh, in terms of of providing access for the majority of South Africans to a high quality education. So, although more money was spent by the government increasingly on on you know, former black schools and and former mo- white schools and Model C schools were opened up to all South Africans, mm. even with with changes like that. Unfortunately, the majority of South Africans were stuck with a very substandard mm. um, education system, and and we've seen that play out in the results ever since. You know, p- people talk about the reduction in, in standards, and and everyone, you know, everyone, especially all white liberals on their soapbox, will very quickly say, you know, the standards have gone down the toilet, and mm. and the pass rates. How can we have a pass rate of thirty three percent? And so I, I don't think a lot of those people understand the details, but I think the sentiment is true in the, in the fact that all of us as South Africans feel quite insecure about the quality of our education mm. that we're providing. Now, we, we happen to also have very high-quality education available in South Africa through the private system mm-hmm. and through selected public schools that, that have hung on and, and, and have maintained high standards. But, yeah. but I think that this this is very dangerous because the ruling class, the – the creative class, the wealthy class, the, the middle classes in South Africa who have means, they send their children to private schools. So they don't mm. see how bad public education is. Yeah. And it was it was actually working with you, Andrew, when we started going out to do photography workshops um, in about 2009. Mm. In Dating us, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, so going out to these... These schools in in I remember particularly Barnato um, in Hillbrow. Yeah. So this is a this is a high school in in Hillbrow. Um, it's one of the largest urban high schools, public mm. high schools in the country. It's one of the oldest as well. One of the oldest. Mm. Um, and we worked at Barnato, and I remember quite distinctly going into a classroom. We would go in on Saturday mornings. They'd give us they'd open a couple of classrooms for us to run our photography workshops. Mm. And it was something like a grade 10 or grade 9 class. And I remember on the wall they had um, printed the <laughs> class list, right? And it had the results. Yeah, and you, you remember. Yeah. And, <clears throat> and it was shocking. It was very transparent. You know, mm. this wouldn't happen at, at uh, you know, when we went to school. There would never be public mm. printing of all the results in the classroom. But they, they pinned it to the wall and it, it had a list of 25, 30 students, however many were in there. And just running through the marks was terrifying. You know, yeah. I can't remember. It was a maths class or English class, yeah. whatever class it was. But I don't – I think that there was one person that got over 50% yeah. or, two people, say, one, one or two, 50%. two people that got over 50%. One or two people that got over 50%. The vast yeah. majority of people were in the 30s and the 40s. There were some 20s. There were some people mm. with 15% and 14%. And, and that for me was shocking because – I don't think that we pushed ourselves particularly hard in, in our schooling environment, mm. but the the idea of getting below 50% was – that was a very, very bad outcome that yeah. should, shouldn't happen for anyone. Yeah. And it would occasionally happen, but then there, there would be a big intervention by the teacher and the school to prevent it. But looking at this school, like it was, it was very unusual for anyone to get over 50% in this mm. class. And then – Another another instance at a similar time, I remember seeing a couple of report cards. I think yeah, you know we asked yeah, yeah. we asked our, Some of our, students. Uh, our students to bring their reports along because we were trying to track their marks or just just be involved in their lives. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing a couple of these report cards. Again, these are grade ten, grade nine, grade ten learners, and you run through their report card, and they they would be getting thirties and forties, and and obviously these marks would shock us and we'd be really upset, but. Any mark that was over 40%, which is, you know, a basic hurdle for, for passing, unfortunately. Mm. But any mark that was over 40%, the teacher's comment would be one or two words, would be, would be very glowing well and encouraging. Done. Congratulations. Well done. Yes, yeah. great. Making progress, you know. Keep up the good work. Exactly. So <laughs> this person is averaging in the 40s and the feedback they're getting is positive. And it is this failure of expectations that I think is at the heart of the problem of our, our education crisis in South Africa is the whole system, the teachers, the 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 parents the the learners have been conned into thinking that a mark over forty or fifty percent is a good outcome, and and I think that I think that that's really the core of the problem is mm. we failed with expectations, 
Um, and we worked with these young people. And there's these young people, there was no way that they were a stereotypical 40 or 50% person. They mm. were smart, young people. Mm. Some of them were tremendously motivated on, on the photography um, workshops that we did with them. And, and you know, there were people like our good friend Tapelo, um, who, incredibly hardworking guy, incredibly smart, incredibly driven person, failed matric. Mm. Um, and it just didn't make sense to me. I couldn't imagine this this guy that I got to know well, Tapelo, in, in the education environment that we grew up in. I couldn't imagine him doing anything but well, you know, mm. I, I would imagine he would have been an A student mm. or, or if things went off the rails and he didn't do so well, he would have been a B student. Mm, mm, but mm, how mm. he ended up failing matric it seemed like a massive failure of the system rather than a lack of capability or, or, or um, intelligence or, or anything, anything to do with his personality or character. Let, let's zoom out a little bit, Gil, because you're speaking about uh, story, personal stories that you're telling, which is really important because it really breathes life into some of the statistics that yeah. are out there. Give us a sense about what it is like in an education space in South Africa at the moment. You know, you know, entering into school slash leaving school slash going into a tertiary education. Just give us a sense of that because I know that you know that those numbers quite well um, and you're well versed in it. How, how does it all stack up? So I I wrote a little article and I, I made a little infographic uh, a while ago on this, which is a little bit of a <laughs> that must have been an amazing infographic. <laughs> your graphic design skills. So it's it's a little bit simplified, but it it really gives a general gist. So if you help us through it, if you imagine there are 20 children who start grade one um and so this is a normal grade one class if you fast forward from grade one all the way through to grade 12 um so 12 years later this is the you know matric the last year of school right. there are only 12 people left in the class so from 20 we've dropped down to 12 we've lost eight people just in the schooling system just in the schooling system, just in the schooling system we've lost eight people okay then these 12 people... So 40% effectively... Yeah, 40% are gone. Are disappeared, yeah. We've got yeah. these these 12 people left in our class, and they write their matric exams. Right. Only seven people pass the matric exams. Out of the full... Out of 12. Out, out of 12. 12 that were left. Okay. Only seven passed, right? Okay. So now these seven who passed the matric exams, I'm talking about the, the very low definition of passing we have mm, in this country. Mm, so mm. that means that you, you know, typically you take six subjects... You need to get at least four subjects above 40%, and you need to get one subject above 33%, and you're allowed to fail one subject. Right. So, so that's the, so the pass high. criteria. The, yeah. you know, the, so the, this is the failure of expectation. So seven people manage to achieve that. Five people don't even manage to achieve that mm. very low standard. So of those seven people who pass the matric um, final exams, three people graduate from higher three people graduate from higher education and or graduate into higher education right so three people actually manage to go to university um and and actually get through whether it's technicon and university and come out of the other side so we've had 20 people starting in grade one seven people getting Mm. to matric Sorry, 20 people starting in grade one, 12 people getting to matric, seven people getting a matric certificate, and only three people coming out of tertiary education of mm. any form. And that doesn't mean they all graduated from UCT or VITS. It means that these three people made it through the range of tertiary education that we have so in this country. So include FET colleges and TVETs exactly, and all, all that. all of that. So the reason that this, this even though there, there are seven people passing matric, our higher education failure rate is terribly high. It's at about mm. 50%. So even if you finish matric and you start higher education, there's a 50% chance that you're going to drop out. And and if we look at that from a, a less African, from a poor South African um, student's perspective, mm. I don't think it's actually sensible to advise a poor South African to go and study at university. Well, I don't think it's advisable for any South African to go to, <laughs> well, from the stats there. It's fine if you, know? you can waste the money. But the, yeah. the reality is if you have to take out a bursary from the government, so if, 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 you, if you qualify for student aid, which is… Which is NESFAS, which, right? NESFAS funding, right. which is pretty much anyone who gets… A, a matric pass and university exemption, you get NESFAS funding. It's mm. not, it's, you just have to apply, right? But I don't think it's a sensible decision to take that money and study 
because there's a 50% dropout rate. So if you're a poor South African, there's a 50% chance you're going to get no qualification and you're going to end up with a pile of student debt. But Gil, it's also now, it's, uh, you know, the other thing which is quite cool about Nesfas is it's also like winning the lotto now. I mean, someone just got 14 million rand. Who knows what's next, you know? <laughs> <laughs> We're talking to Gilbert Pretty, he's the MD of Amuzi. <clears throat> And we're asking, is there a way to change the major uh, economic challenges that South Africa faces? Gil, you've, you've painted a pretty a bleak picture, and I think there's more bleakness to come before we get into the positivity. One of the big issues that we spoke about often um, in, our, in the numerous conversations that we have uh, throughout the day and th- throughout the years is when, when this fees must fall thing came up um, uh, a couple of years ago, one of the interesting things that you uh, observed and, and stated was it's interesting that people are shouting the odds that fees must fall, um, getting people into these education institutions, specifically the higher ones, the mm. tertiaries, the UCTs, the VITs, and how you know it's, it's exorbitantly expensive. And you spoke about how you don't think it's efficient to take NESFAS to go to those kind of institutions. It's too risky. It's yeah. too risky, right? One of the other things which you pointed out, which I never thought of before, but very interesting point is, what are they actually learning at these institutions? So what is the quality of education that's mm. coming out? And why are we not really looking into that and, and challenging that to say, look, you know, the truth is graduate unemployment rate is quite low in South Africa. So that's the good news. Yeah. But the, the, the bad news is that a lot of corporates in South Africa have to have these things called graduate programs because you come out knowing nothing about what you're going to do. What's your thoughts and processes around around what the quality of education at tertiary is like? So I think that that education is one of these sectors that's been incredibly uncompetitive um, for a long time. Right. And and I think that if you set up your VITS, your UCT, or your Burnham Business College, or your your <laughs> you know your Vega, your Triple A, why are you giving Burnham Business College? Such a bad <laughs> <laughs> You're going to promote them. Who knows? Um, or Damlin or anything like that. To be honest, it's a, been a bit of an easy ride. Mm. Like, and and you know, I'm. I don't talk with the full confidence, having run all of these institutions myself. This is just an outsider's perspective, so I want to be humble about it. But, but I don't think it's a very hard gig to run a higher education institution in this country, um, or it hasn't been for for many years. I think that there's a captive market. I think once you jump through the hoops of getting the accreditation. Um, I think that it's pretty easy to charge fairly high fees if you're in the public sector or if, or if you're in the private sector. If you're in the public sector, it hasn't been that hard to get money out of government. Right. Um, and there hasn't been competitive pressure for you to innovate. I don't think very many of these, these institutions have, have fundamentally changed their qualifications um, in, you know, in my lifetime that I've been aware of these. Mm. Um, I think, you know, there's still the same slate of BAs and BCOMs and BSCs and engineering degrees and whatnot. But yet the world has changed fundamentally. You know, we were talking about um, our, our personal history. When I came back to South Africa um, in in 2012, when I came back and settled, it I wasn't a postal service. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have a smartphone, right? I didn't have a smartphone. When I was in London, I had a BlackBerry, right? That was the height of technology. It was yes, a BlackBerry, it was, right? It was fantastic. Um, but... If we think in the last five years, my life has changed dramatically with a smartphone. And we think about all of the applications, the advancements, the changes, the way that we do business has changed, the way that we, the way that we order food, the way that we communicate, the way that we move around through Uber. Uh, Things are fundamentally different in the last five years. I don't think VITs have fundamentally changed Mm. what they're lecturing in the last five years. And that's a big sign that the, that something is fishy, something's wrong, and I don't think education has changed in a fundamental way for a much longer period. I think it's 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 probably a couple of hundred years that there hasn't been any major changes in education, mm. um, and we're starting to see this in the school space. So there's a lot of there's a lot of advancement that's been happening in 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 Europe and in America, especially with the charter school movement. There's been a lot more innovation, a lot more experimentation. 
Um, people are trying to bring technology into the classroom. They're trying to change the role of the teacher. They're trying to change, move away from rote learning, moving to, towards more problem solving mm. um, and, and more learner-driven um, education in, in all ways. So it's not, you know, the learner is the empty vessel and the teacher pouring all of the knowledge in. Right. Um, it's more about supporting the learner to be curious and explore and to work with other people and, mm. and learn about themselves and, and solve problems. Um, so there is positive movement now, and we all know examples of this, but it's still the margin. It's still the 1% that's doing that. Mm. The vast majority of education, especially in South Africa, the vast majority of education is old-fashioned, mm. rote learning, boring stuff that, that makes kids hate school. You know, Kids mm. still hate school, <laughs> yeah. and, and in the same ways that we hated school when we were there. And university is the same. People don't go to lectures because, you know, they can download the, the, the PowerPoint now. They can, they read the textbook. Like it's the same thing that's been going on for generations. Mm. People are dissatisfied with the crummy state of education. And, and I think that until there's real competition, until there's, there's a shakeup, there's innovation, educators are going to keep doing the same boring old mm. things. Um, and that's the prop. That's why one of the things I was very optimistic about Fees Must Fall is I thought that it's actually a really good thing for the universities to be challenged, right. for them to have to think, you know, can we, we cannot afford to continue doing things in the same way. Mm. You know, but one of the failures of it is, a, you know, an outcome of Fees Must Fall. You know, the government claims a victory and say, fees have fallen or fees have stayed the same. We won't increase it <laughs> again this year. But that doesn't matter. It's, it's, you know, in a way, the cost is just a very small part of the argument, um, and cost is important to access. But as we say, even if you get an asphalt bursary, I don't think it's worth going to university now because there's a 50% chance that you're going to drop out. So, Would you say that to your child? I really would. I wouldn't encourage my child to go into a traditional education route now. I think there's far more... There's far more ways available now for you to learn things. And I think what's exciting is companies are starting to wake up that you can't just hire on a degree. In the past, you know, it was basically what, which university did you get go to? Mm -hmm. What degree did you get? Okay, you know, you're either eligible or not for this job. But I think companies are learning now and we as a society are learning that it's not the quality of the piece of paper. It's not the insignia of the university that you went to that counts. It's your ability to solve problems. It's your ability to work with other people. But I mean, Gil, is that really true? I mean, are companies in South Africa really changing like that? I mean, we've heard of some <clears throat> great examples. KPMG in the UK decided that, you know, the degree is not in, as important now and they've, yeah. they've made some tests and stuff. But the average corporate in South Africa, they're, no, they're still, still looking for signals, sleeping, right? Yeah, and they're, they're still, still sleeping, looking yeah. for signals because they went and studied yeah. and they it's so, a self-fulfilling prophecy right it's yeah. like to keep up the elitism you've got to show that you were part of the elite and that you look for those elites that are part of the elite that you were a part of right yeah absolutely so I think that there's that element to it there's also HR you know oh, H God. HR function you know they they focus on um, they try to develop systematic processes of filtering people to to, to decide on the quality of these people that they want to hire. Right. And it's very difficult or it's harder to assess an individual's ability, true ability. You've got to test them on the job. You know, that, that's what we've learned to do, Muzi. The most important part of our, um, our recruitment process is actually inviting people to spend a week with us and working on the job. And it's, mm. it's through seeing them working on the job that we can really see their, their potential and their capability. Now, companies need to invest more in those sorts of approaches because it's easier for HR just to say, oh, no, okay, well, we're looking for engineering candidates from VITS. And they're just assuming that that's an indication of quality. And it is an indication of quality. But the problem is that there's a huge number of young people out there that didn't get to do engineering at FITS, mm. but they still have great potential. Mm. And I think this is the big lesson that, that we've been learning at Umuzi over the last couple of years is there's an enormous um, number of young people in South Africa that are not realizing their potential. They're stuck either, either being unemployed, um, and we know that the, the, the stats, they, you know, they change depending on who's reporting, but roughly 50% of the youth, so this is the 15 to 34-year-olds, mm. roughly 15% of that group of young people mm. are unemployed, mm -hmm. um, which is a 
terrible loss of potential to the economy. And then there's this whole other category that the two of us have been excited about exploring and talking about lately is the underemployed. You know, even even amongst the 50% that do have jobs, there's a very high number, and we haven't been able to find a reliable source for this yet, but there's a very high number of young people that are in jobs, but they're in really bad jobs. Mm. They're, they're, in, they're in retail jobs. They're, they're, they're box packing. They're, they're checking customers call in centers. and out. They're Hello, in call Mr. centers. How may I help you? you and... Know? and you know, not to demean these professions. These are jobs that people do. They're respectable. They earn money. But they're not careers. Mm. They're, they're not structured in a way that a young person will start in this. And over after two years, they'll learn a lot and grow. And they'll be promoted. And then they'll, they'll be on a, a career track that will lead to a better life, a middle-class life. These are traps. These underemployment jobs are traps where people get stuck and they get stuck at a level of 4,000, 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 rand a year, sorry, a month, um, income. And why do they get trapped? What's the, what's the story there? Well, the thing is there's no career path. These companies are not investing in them. So let's look at a classic modern example, Uber, right? So Uber's created a lot of employment. There's a mm. lot of Uber drivers now that mm. are driving around. Mm. Now, an Uber driver on a good month will, will bring in, you know, after all is said and done and like paying the car off and paying the fuel and paying all of these things after on a, you know, on a decent month, the guys will pull in say five, six grand, right? That's, that's been my experience chatting to Uber drivers. Now there's a lot of risk with that, with Uber that, that they bear the risk, but there's after doing Uber for six months, there's no, there's no mechanism in which you're going to earn more than five or six grand a month. Captain Uber. No, there's, yeah, there's no senior Uber driver. There's, <laughs> there's no manager of the Uber driver. So in theory, it is theoretically possible that you could save all of this money up. You could buy a second car. You could get another driver. You could take an entrepreneurial route, but it's in practice, it hardly ever happens. There's mm. very, very few success stories like that, unfortunately. And that's a modern example, but call centers are the same. The, ch- the turnover rate in call centers is, is, is well documented. It's a mm. universal truth. You know, call center people, they typically last a couple of months or six months at the most, and then they leave because it's a depressing work environment. It's high pressure. Mm. It, you don't get paid very much. And so people are just filling, filling space and they're just earning a basic income. Well, on the other side of it, if you, if you are that employee, you get trapped as well because, you know, we, we talk about and, and the media talks about black tax and a lot of the people that we work with are really living that story of black tax where you're this, the single earner in the household. I mean, I just looked at the stats to say stats for single earners uh, in households, right? So there's a total of 19 million people living uh, at homes with families um, in the 15 to 34 age group. Oh. Of that 19 million, 5.4 million live in a household where they are the single earner in that wow. household. So this black tax thing is real. It's they're like supporting a lot. They're of supporting people. a lot of people in that. So you you can't just move and be like, right, well there you go. I've, I've, I can go search. For opportunities, you've mm. got to continue to do that job. Be that Uber driver, that call center person, sitting in steers, sitting at at you know H and M and Edgars or whatever it is, yeah. because you you can't afford to drop that money. No, you can't. And and I think that you know also from the employer's perspective, um, you see a certain amount of cynicism coming in in their behavior. Right. So. Uber, Uber doesn't need to offer a career track to drivers yeah. because there's a queue of a thousand dudes waiting to be the next Uber driver. Yeah. So if, if you don't like being an Uber driver and you're not performing, off. Yeah, yeah. they'll boot you out because there's another guy desperate to take your spot. And, and it's the same in retail, you know, there's no upward pressure on salaries in, in these basic retail roles or mm. very little because the reality is that there's many young people out there that it would be grateful to get a job um, at, at pick and pay or at H&M or, you know, stacking boxes or whatever it is. So it's really a bit of a dead end. And there's mm. a lot of, so there's a lot of unemployed young people that are in a dead end. There's a lot of underemployed young people that are in a slightly better, but still a dead end right. position. And as you say, both of these groups struggle to get access to better opportunities. Mm. Um, and the university education, whether it's through the private sector, which is very expensive or, going into the public sector and getting loans and whatnot, it's ineffective. It's too expensive and it's ineffective. And when I say ineffective, it's not it's not good at getting people jobs. Right. So you mentioned earlier that we do have a 
we do have quite a good statistic of graduate employment in this country. Yep. So if you manage to finish a university qualification in South Africa, you pretty pretty high chance that you're mm. going to get a job. But this, the, the reality is that's hidden behind those statistics is half of the people who start university are dropping out. Right. So actually universities are pretty so bad at getting actually, you a job. Yeah. Yep. Universities are only got about a 50 or less than a 50% chance of getting you a job. That's not a good investment to make. Um, so I think that I think that what we need to do is we need to rethink education, not just in a feasible full way of like how do we make existing education slightly more affordable. Um, we need to rethink it in a radical way. Okay, so we're joined by MD of Umuzi, Gilbert Pooley, uh, and we're asking, is there a way to change uh, the major economic challenges that South Africa faces? We're doing a series on this. We're going to speak to big business. We're going to speak to entrepreneurs, and, of course, we're going to speak to educators. Gil is an educator. Um, okay, so we've heard all the bad news, right? We've heard about the education current system, both at a, a lower and a tertiary level. We've heard about the unemployment rates and, and this new word or terminology called underemployed, which I find fascinating, you know? Um, Often we'll hear about governments celebrating that so many young people have got jobs, but the truth is, what is that job? You know, mm. and how sustainable are those jobs? And what's the path to a high-value job? You know, um, what's the career path there? So that that's all the depressing news. Thankfully, done in thirty-five minutes, which is fantastic. <laughs> so, give us a little sense of what is the positive news? 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 How are you reimagining education, Gilbert? Like. You've taken on a, a pretty different path. You started out in management consulting, and and you had a high growth uh, potential journey. Um, you changed your path completely, 180 degrees, and yeah. now now doing something very different. How are you reimagining education? So I think the first opportunity is to put a spin on the underemployment and the unemployment, and say, you know, we we often talk about the slow growth rate in South Africa and how yep. that limits us. Um, the one point six percent or something, whatever like that. it is at the moment. You know, it's it's way below the theoretical five percent GDP growth mm, that would make a big difference. Should and, have, yeah, <laughs> exactly, and would create the jobs that are necessary and et cetera, et cetera. Um, now, one of the exciting opportunities is to relook at the youth unemployment and underemployment and say, this is a big opportunity. Half of our youth are not engaged in the economy in a formal way. Mm. If we could develop some sort of approach that could take this half of our youth and get them actively employed and engaged mm. in the economy, creating more value than they currently are locked out of the economy – that's a massive additional amount of, of mm, growth mm. and GDP that we can add. Um, and that will grow the pie tremendously. So businesses will make more money. Salaries can go up. More people can get jobs. Um, these more young people will want things and demand things. Exactly. And, yeah. These young people can support their families so we have less of these single owner households that you were talking mm. about. So one can flip that. So one can be really really bold and say how can we develop you know how might we as south africa develop more effective education that enables this 50 percent of young people who are excluded from the economy to engage productively in the economy <laughs> what a design thinking <laughs> problem statement there how might we do this but it, it's exactly that that universities are failing to do I don't know. Are the people in higher education and is the government, the Department of Higher Education, are they thinking about this problem? Are they starting each day saying, how might we get these 50% of young people that are locked out of the economy active in the economy? Mm. I don't think anyone's asking that question. No. People are asking very small questions like, oh, how might we stop the increase in the, the, the student fees this year f from being 10%, how can we make it 5% or how can we make it 0%? That's not going to make a fundamental difference. Right. Um, so we need to find these radical approaches that bring more people into the economy. And I think, you know, working together at Umuzi, we've, we've started to find something um, over the last three years that does that. Mm. And we've found a mechanism through, through the BE um, codes and and specifically in BE there's there's this pillar called skills development and and many people have heard about this in a rough way but don't really understand it it I really think it's a brilliant piece of legislation mm. it basically asks all South African companies over a certain size um, to spend between three and six percent of their payroll and um, so that's the total amount of money that they pay out to their staff every mm -hmm. month they need to spend 
between 3 and 6% on either training their own staff or training unemployed young people. And that's the budget that we tap into at Amuzi, is this, this budget for, that every large company has for training unemployed young people. Mm. And companies are incentivized to spend this because they need to spend this money to get the b- maximum BE points. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've put together a 12-month program, this learnership program, which gives young people an opportunity to access high-value careers. Mm. And we, we, we're very demand-driven, so we go out to industry, and, and we started in the creative industry. So we started working with advertising um, agencies, production companies, media houses. We, we spent time um, with them understanding what their skills needs are. And it was, it was things like um, graphic design, copywriting, um, videography, digital mm. marketing. These were the, these were the, the, the skills that they were struggling to hire, yeah. that there are not enough young people being trained in this in the, in the traditional university, whether it's private or public, mm. not enough young people coming through, especially not enough young black people coming through with these skills. Right. Um, so it's very difficult <clears throat> for these companies to meet their BE targets, to spend their skills development, but then get enough young black people into their ranks so that they're, that they are a transformed organization. And this, this problem is particularly acute in, in something like advertising where it's not just a question of filling quotas and getting enough you know, black faces in the office. It's, it's actually a requirement for them to do good work. Mm. If they want to market their products to, to South Africans, well, they better understand the lived experience of the majority of South Africans. Mm. And until and, and today, there's, there's still not enough... Um, especially young black South Africans represented in that industry who are able to bring their lived experience into the work that they do. Right. So we saw an opportunity here. There's an industry that requires very specific skills. There's an industry that recognizes it needs to transform. Um, So we developed this one-year learnership, and it's it's basically an alternative to university. Um, So if a young person cannot afford to to go to Avega, AAA, or Red and Yellow, um, which are the traditional routes into into the creative sector. Mm. And it, it's very obvious that they couldn't afford to do that because you've got to have something between 60 and 100,000 rand a year to go to one of yeah. these institutions. And you need Super to spend expensive. three years there. So you're looking at hundreds of thousands of rands, which is obviously completely out of reach for the majority of South Africans. Mm. So we put together a program where companies pay. They sponsor a learnership. We go and we find a talented young person who has the right skills and aptitude to, mm. to fill this. And we put them on a very intense one-year program. Um, and not only is their tuition covered by their, their potential future employer, but so is a stipend. We actually pay them. At the moment, we pay them 2,250 rand a month mm. to do the program. Yep. So that it's not a hell of a lot of money, right. but it's definitely better than having to pay fees. It, it helps you with transport. It helps you with your basic living, living um, uh, and, and accommodation. So... This we believe this is it's not just a question of fees must fall. It's like we need an inversion of fees. We need to actually we need to actually to generate barriers, money right? to lower the barriers, to give people the opportunity to mm. study. Because studying is not free. You know, mm-hmm. even if the fees are free, you're just going to going going into study every day or to, to work on a job every day costs you money. Um so we've we've put this program together and they spend nine months working with us and and we don't follow a traditional um, approach to education at all. Mm. It's it's all on the job training. Well, I was going to ask. You know, we 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 flighting around the subject a little bit, but what yeah. is the quality of the education that is happening at this institution? So it, it's very good. I think the way that we like to measure the quality is based on the outcomes that we achieve. So. Mm. Very many institutions, um, almost all education institutions that I'm aware of in South Africa, they report on and they measure their success based on output. So how many people join, how many people graduate. Right. Um, and universities are not even doing well by those metrics because yeah. they can boast about how many gra- graduate. But the reality is only about 50% how of the many people who out, join yeah. um, actually manage to, to go through and, and get a degree or a diploma or something from it. So – even on those metrics, it's not very good. But even graduating is not a great measure of success. Um, getting a piece of paper and 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 you know, finishing is is not actually the goal. The goal is to become economically active. Mm. So that means getting a job or or at least freelancing and being able to bring in some income. Um, so we measure our success on that. So using that as a quality measure. 
80% of the young people who join us um, at the beginning of our program, 80% of those people end up getting jobs and really good quality jobs at top advertising agencies, media companies, production houses. Um, and that's, that's how we measure our quality. Um, and how do we achieve that? We don't use a standard approach. We don't, ha- we don't employ any lecturers or teachers or, mm. or formal educators. We employ people from the industry, managers from the industry who – who are typically young managers from the industry who have recently gone through this process themselves. So they know what it takes to succeed in these potential employers. Right. They've been hired. We've taken them from their role as a senior art director at, at a, you know, a fancy agency like Ogilvy or FCB or Joe Public, mm. um, Network BBDO, any King James, any one of these big, strong, um, national agencies or international agencies. And they select the young people. They train them on the job for nine months, and they prepare them for work experience. The last three months of our program is work experience, where these young people go and they work for a potential employer. So there's no actual curriculum. Well, there there is. You know, we've we've got a we've got a, an idea of the kind of skills mm. that are required for a junior role, um, and and it's it's in working with these potential employers to define these skills that we make sure that our program is very relevant. Mm-hmm. So we understand exactly what these employers are looking for in, in a young copywriter or, or, or a young art director, um, you know, a, a young videographer. We understand the deliverables that these young people will be expected to, to be able to produce in their first job. Mm-hmm. And then we work backwards from that and we basically say, okay, what series of projects can we create so that these young people can practice these skills for mm-hmm. a whole year with us or for at least nine months whilst they're with us so that they're ready so that when they enter the, the, the work environment, they know how to complete these tasks. They know how to deliver these these very, very um, particular junior requirements that this company has. Right. So, you know, let's again, let's zoom out slightly because, um, of course, People are listening to this and, and fascinating discussion around the future of edu- education potentially and how it could uh, potentially change and how we could change the needle of that 50% uh, dropping off um, in tertiary education. You spoke about being more demand driven. You spoke a little bit about being, you know, on the job. So, mm. so this idea of apprenticeship kind of modeling. I know there's yes. a lot of that happening in, in uh, Europe, for example, Germany. Uh, Switzerland, they're, they're doing a lot of work and, and the government is actually promoting a lot of apprenticeship models in that yes. space, yeah. which is very interesting. And you spoke about success, uh, success being measured differently, uh, not, not about pieces of paper, but more about quality of jobs, uh, prospects and being an economic participant. Uh, I've got two questions as we start to wrap up a little bit, Gil. Like first one, what, what's the big thing for you? Uh, in terms of education, like if you had to sum it up into, into one sentence, what's the thing that is the most important to you around education that you want to, anyone working with you or learning from you, this is the one piece of thing that you want to give them? I would say we need to be really outcomes focused. Any educator should start by defining what is the outcome that they desire. What is, what is the expectation of the young person at the end of this, this education experience? And for us, that's fulfilling one of these, these junior jobs. Mm. And so we design everything that happens in the education experience to be as close as possible to the demands of that, that first job mm. so that when the young person leaves Umuzi, in our case, they've already had as much experience and practice and on-the-job exposure mm-hmm. to the mm-hmm. real expectations of the market. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not something that anyone or virtually anyone in a tertiary education position in South Africa can say, unfortunately. Like, how many of – and, you know, this is anecdotal, but how many of our lecturers really had a sense of what the job requirements were mm. for a junior graduating from their program? 
most of them have never fulfilled those job requirements themselves. Not to say that lecturers aren't skilled or intelligent or capable people. I was about to say, you're about to get a lot of hate mail. <laughs> no, but they are fundamentally academics fulfilling an academic career. Right. They don't spend all of their time understanding what the junior requirements are of potential employers. Mm. So th- there's a mix match in, in terms of what you sp- the time you spend at university or in your education. You're doing stuff that's quite disconnected from the outcome that is desired, which mm. is a young person who's employable mm. and is getting a particular job. But surely they could come back at you and say, no, but we're teaching a way of thinking. Well, I would like them to produce evidence that that way of thinking is really creating young employable people. And mm. unfortunately, the way of thinking is actually excluding 50% of the people that go into tertiary education mm. at the moment. The, the way of thinking is not delivered in a way that that is is reliably a successful path for the majority of people who are into tertiary education. 50% of people are dropping out. So that way of thinking, in my view, is flawed. Mm. There's there's not a good system. There's not a good um, reliable system that's been developed in these universities that can take a talented young person and put them through the system and get them into a job. And that's the problem that we need to solve. I think often a lot of these education institutions, specifically maybe the private ones and maybe the public ones, started with best intentions, Yeah. right? Started with the idea of saying we want to educate and a lot of people can talk a little bit about where education came from and how it was supposed to uh, support the industrialization uh, movements back in the day. And that's where traditional education comes from. So there were good intentions there, you know. Um, I'm not sure those were good intentions. Probably not. Yeah, 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 probably not. As I said that, I was like, I'm talking the biggest load of shit right now. But, but what I'm saying is I'm hoping that someone had a good intention somewhere along the line. I don't right? think today's lecturers are badly intentioned. I don't think today's curriculum developers are badly intentioned. They're just so disconnected from well, the goal, which is creating active economic participants. Let me finish the thought process on this. It could there could come a day where someone like you, who's now this innovator, disruptor, you know, reimaginer of education, gets into a position where you don't, where you, where you get lost because you become so big, you become so successful, you're, you're doing a number of hundreds or thousands, hopefully, of, of young people and in different careers. How do you stop the blind spots? How do you make sure that there's a process in which <clears throat> you don't become the big, um, I don't know, corporate educator that, yeah, that the doesn't slow, the slow moving technocrat yeah, yeah, yeah. of, of, edu- of new education. What's the thing that you put in place for yourself? And maybe you haven't at this mm. point in time, but how do you stop the rot effectively? So I think one of the biggest things that I've learned um, from starting off in the creative sector and, and what we've learned at Amuzi is a process called human centered design. And we really try to live true to this process um, on so many different levels in the organization. So it's the fundamental creative process that we teach to all of the young people who work mm. with us, whether they're coming in to be coders and um, whether they're coming to be copywriters, they all learn human centered design as a common way of working. And we try to live that as an organization as well. So all of the, the work that we do, all of the curriculum development, all of the programs that we put together, all of the partnerships and the way that we work is all based on human centered design. And there's two really, really important features of human-centered design that keep you honest, I think, and I hope will keep us honest and keep us relevant. The first is the first step of human-centered design is empathizing. Um, So it's fundamentally user-centric. Now, I don't know how many university um, professors, um, educators, teachers even – truly understand the needs of their students and their learners. I think there's some good ones out there Mm. that do, but unfortunately I think a lot of them have lost touch with that. So I think in a university setting, a lot of, a lot of academics are far more focused on career and, and academic, Mm -hmm. um, academic success and publishing and research than they are on the undergraduate experience. And they'll openly admit this. They're incentivized in their role to be focused on research rather than the undergraduate experience. So I think Empathizing is incredibly important, and we try to do a lot of that at Umuzi, mm-hmm. and, and we, we try to really actively understand all of the obstacles and challenges that, that stand between this young person and that job and, and that successful career, right. and we constantly try to innovate on that. The second thing that I think is really important is this idea of prototyping and testing. 
we're constantly trying to get better by making small prototypes, um, by experimenting. So, for instance, we just l- launched coding, and we are, we've got actively we're experimenting in the coding space. We're not just we didn't write a curriculum and then get it accredited and then assume that that was the right thing and forget about it. Mm-hmm. We're actively prototyping this and trying it and and getting young people to try elements of the curriculum, speaking to employers and seeing if it's the right skill fit, and then coming back and, and, and iterating and improving it and changing it. And we've been doing this consistently over the last um, three years with our, our creative qualifications, and they've changed dramatically. Mm. Over three years, our sort of curriculum has moved from, you know, from you know, if we think about how we started, we started training people in photography and graphic design, mm. and we've now moved to a completely different set of skills right. based on being demand-driven. And um, so I think that these are the two most important things, really being user-centric and empathizing and consistently prototyping and testing and being experimental so that you, you never accept that whatever you've done is right. It always needs to get better. It always needs to change and evolve as the needs of the market and the, the needs of individuals change. Okay, lastly, uh, before we go, we've got to wrap up really quickly here. Um, just your thoughts on how the average South African listening to this show uh, or, or a South African listening to this show um, – could get involved in this or could get involved in educational changes or could make a difference uh, in the educational space and reimagining education, just if there's any thoughts that you have. I think um, it's a mindset shift. So I don't. I think the best thing that could happen is if people lose faith in traditional education. If they wake up and realize that this is an old system, it's over a hundred years old. There's there's so many problems with it. it. It's expensive. It doesn't achieve the outcomes that we need. And if they just if they just start opening their minds up to the fact that experience is the best educator and teacher, there are so many exciting online courses available that are much much better than anything that you'll get taught at at a typical university in South Africa. Mm. There's so many opportunities to learn through volunteer work, through, through in, engaging in, in, in community activities. Um, and, and I think by, by just, by just engaging, engaging with problems that you find in your own community and your own life and trying to solve those. So I would say, look at your life, look at your experience as a massive laboratory that you can experiment in. And I think if you encourage yourself to do that and you encourage your children or young people to do that and not depend on traditional education to teach you what you need to learn, you can go so far. Whether it's watching cool YouTube um, uh, channels about how to do things, whether it's chatting to your friend about trying to solve a particular problem in your community, that is an education opportunity that arguably is much, much richer and more beneficial than any traditional education offering that, that's available at the moment. All right, and there we're going to have to leave it. Gilbert Pooley, uh, MD of Amuzi, thank you so much for joining us today on Frankly Speaking. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. And uh, for more information, just give us the website. So you can visit umuzi.org. Um, and find out all about our learnerships um, and and all about the exciting work that the young people that we we work with are doing. You can follow us on on Facebook, um, and you can check us out on on Instagram as well. Um, a lot of the a lot of the cool projects and work um, that that the young people that are in our organisation and our alumni is is showcased on our social media. And, and I think that that's another big change that I would love to see other educators take on is, you know, VITS, UCT, these, these, profi- these platforms that they have, they should be promoting their own students' work mm. um, and showing more evidence of the, the, the interesting work that young people are doing um, in, in, in traditional education. I think that would be good pressure, that's, that's external visibility. So mm. come and check out what we do at Amuzi and make up your own mind whether or not you think it's good. There we got to leave it. It is, frankly speaking, is there a way to change or are there ways to change the major economic challenges in South Africa? We've been speaking to a, an educator who is reimagining the space in South Africa. I must uh, just apologize. I didn't say how biased I was towards this person in the studio today. Uh, he is my partner in crime uh, in another organization that I run. And uh, we're going to be speaking to big business next week. And we're going to be speaking to entrepreneurs as well to see how we can change and move the needle in uh, facing up against the major crises uh, in our economics in South Africa. Have yourself a lovely day. If you missed any of the podcast, check out Frankly Speaking uh, on cliffcentral.com. For now, we'll see you later. Ciao, ciao. This is cliffcentral.com.